Hey everybody, happy new year. Hopefully you're doing great. It is the beginning of a brand new year. Well, I guess technically, as we've been saying, the beginning of the church calendar is Advent, but obviously culturally, January 1st is the new year for us. And so we just hope that Christmas and New Year's and the whole holiday season has been great for you. And I just know that some of you are back in the swing of things and back at it. Others, this will be the next couple of days where you're going to jump back in to kind of reality and to life and to work and school. But it is great to kind of be back together and joining in on the first Sunday of 2020. Who would have thought? It's so funny. A lot of churches have 20 have had 2020 visions, uh, whether that's building programs or whatever campaigns or whatever. And here we are, it's 2020 and there's no jetpacks. Well, I guess there's jetpacks kind of, but there's no Jetson-like reality for us quite yet, which I'm kind of disappointed. You know, maybe 10 years ago, I thought maybe the Jetsons was the future for us, but not quite yet. But either way, we're really thrilled and excited about the coming days and months and we're excited for 2020 and all that God has for us as a community and excited that you're along for the journey. Now, if you don't know, we are taking some time to actually walk through the church calendar and that means for us following the lectionary and just kind of leaning into the different seasons in the church calendar. Today's a little unique. Today, the first Sunday in January, the first Sunday of 2020, is actually the 12th day of Christmas. And you're like, what? Yeah, for a lot of people, for especially a lot of Christians, they practice Christmas not just as one day, but as 12 days, the time between the birth of Jesus on the 25th to the Magi coming to Jesus with gifts. And so if Christmas is on a Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, typically what happens, sorry, if Christmas is, sorry, is on a Monday or a Tuesday, Typically what happens is you only get one Sunday in Christmas. Uh, The Sunday uh, following Christmas Day is typically the first Sunday of Christmas. But some years, if Christmas lands later in the week, you actually get two Sundays. And so today is actually the second Sunday of Christmas. And then tomorrow is the Feast of Epiphany in the church calendar. And we're going to start celebrating Epiphany and get into a teaching series around Epiphany next week. But it's this kind of Interesting day, the 12th day of Christmas. Here we are, here you are. And so we thought we'd take a couple minutes and do a couple things. One, we're going to look at today's text from the New Testament, do a short reflection and talk through really what it means for us. And then the other thing we're going to do today is really get going our spiritual practice for the next number of weeks and probably for the next couple of months for us that we're going to introduce today. So it's the 12th day of Christmas. We're going to look at the text and then we're going to introduce something that I think is going to be super beneficial for us as a church community. So hopefully you can hang in with us. I think it will be beneficial for you. At any rate, the text for today in the lectionary is the New Testament text is Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it. Now, this will probably be a little familiar for you because we did go through the letter of Ephesians mid-2019, so a few months ago, six months ago. And so we actually touched on this, but I think it's super important just to touch it one more time because I think there's something beautiful that can be uh, just drawn out from this text that Paul writes. So Paul says this, writing to a church in Ephesus in the ancient Mediterranean, he says this, 
And I'm just going to read from a kind of a unique version of the New Testament. Uh, Normally we use the NIV, but this is actually a translation called the Kingdom Translation, translated by New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Don't use it a lot, but just his language here in interpreting the Greek is amazing. He says this, verse 1, Let us bless God, Paul says, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the King. He has blessed us in the King with every Spirit-inspired blessing in the heavenly realm. He chose us in Him before the world was made, so as to be holy and irreproachable before Him in love. He foreordained us for Himself to be adopted through Jesus the King. That's how we wanted it, and that's what gave Him delight. Verse 6, so that the glory of His grace, the grace He poured on us in His beloved One, might receive its due praise. Verse 7, in the king and through his blood, we have deliverance. That is, our sins have been forgiven through the wealth of his grace, which he lavished on yes. Yes, with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the secret of his purpose, just as he wanted it to be, and set it forward in him as a blueprint for when the time was ripe. His plan was to sum up the whole cosmos in the king. Yes, everything in heaven and on earth in him. Verse 11, in him, we have received the inheritance. We were foreordained to this according to the intention of the one who does all things in accordance with the counsel of his purpose. This was so that he, that we, we who first hoped in the king might exist for the praise of his glory. In him, you too, who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed it in him, you were marked out with the spirit of promise, the Holy One. The spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the time when the people of when the people who are God's special possession are finally reclaimed and free. This too is for the praise of his glory. And everybody said, "A freaking man, we might as well just like pray and be done, right? This is pretty phenomenal." Now, again, we've touched this before this particular text Um, What's crazy about what I just read there, the beauty of those verses is that actually in the Greek language in which Paul wrote it, this is actually one sentence. Yep, one, one sentence. It's actually 202 words in Greek, and this is actually the longest New Testament sentence in the scripture. Crazy. Now, you and I, especially if you're in academia, you would probably get in trouble if you were to do this. Like, this is the ultimate run-on sentence. The NIV, uh, which I didn't read here, but the NIV, which I normally read out of, uh, breaks it down into eight different sentences, just to put it in perspective. Now, here's the point in all of this. Paul is brimming. He is brimming over. Paul is, just listen to the language and the run-on. He is so excited about what God has done in bringing all of us, even those of us that read this a couple thousand years later, into the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus has done to bring us in. Now think about it. If you're sitting around in a a house church like in Ephesus and you're sitting around the Lord's Supper and somebody's reading just, just what this means because Paul is bursting at the seams about the gospel and the grace of Jesus and what it does. Amazing. Don't let don't let it be lost on us. That's the thing sometimes when we read the Bible so much and it's so available to us and many of you guys will be jumping into Bible reading plans and all sorts of stuff. Just how amazing 
the work of Jesus is and what it does for us. And of course, this is also at the same time a classic piece of Pauline theology. Because what Paul does over and over is he retells the story of Israel and he does it in a way that's worshipful. And so we always say you can't really disconnect the Old Testament from the New Testament. Over and over, Paul is using all sorts of lit up imagery to show what God has done through even the story of the Old Testament. It's charged with Old Testament imagery. And the reality is, is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah the promised one of Israel. And because of this, everything changes, not just for Israel and the people of God, but for the entire, well, I mean, you read it here, the entire cosmos, everything changes because of new creation. And this is just a classic reminder for us that we love what we talk about, right? This is what summed up Paul. We love what we talk about. And it's just brimming over for Paul. He is ecstatic at what God has done, and it just, this marked his life. It just overflowed in everything that God has done. And Christmas, being the 12th day of Christmas, Christmas is marked for Christians, and obviously even beyond that in our own culture, is marked by gifts. Gifts have always been a particular part of Christmas in the Christmas season, in the church calendar especially. Um, Some people, and you may or may not know this, but over the 12 days of Christmas, we'll give a different gift on each day over those 12 days. I think we should bring that back. Come on, somebody. And so there's people that celebrate this, and gifts have always been integral to Christmas. Maybe even now you're thinking of some of the gifts that you received this Christmas season, and uh, thoughtful, I think, gifts have always been a part of the story. And here's the thing. This text is not out of place for the 12th day of Christmas because Paul talks here about how these amazing, mind-blowing, earth-shattering gifts have been given to all of us that have responded and given allegiance to Jesus. Just really quick, I just want to highlight a couple, just a few different gifts that Paul talks about here. One, 11 times in this text, this run-on sentence, 202 words, 11 times Paul uses the word in Christ. Or maybe you read it here in this particular version, uh, N.T. Wright translates it, in the king. We cannot, we, we can't get into some of the things we're going to get into here without being reminded that the greatest gift we have is the reality of Jesus. You and I have been brought in and we are in Christ. And Paul just over and over hammers away that our entire being, everything that we are as people, as humans who have responded to Jesus, we are in Christ. Jesus, hands down, is the greatest gift. His life, his teachings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and now the reality that he's given us his spirit. Paul over and over is just gushing to this community. And we think Ephesians is actually a letter that would be passed around to a number of communities. And what Paul is doing is is just laying in to the reality that you, we are these people, even a couple thousand years later, that are in Christ. And we have to keep that before us. This is the greatest thing. This is why we exist. Before we get into practices and a rule of life and 2020 and what God has for us, Beyond all that, we need to start with the reality that Jesus is the greatest gift. Then he also uses this word, Paul does, he uses uses this word that I think is a gift, and the word is adoption. 
adoption. Now, uh, adoption is a thing in our culture. Uh, we have Heather and I have great friends, a number of couple of friends, a number of couples that are friends, sorry, that have adopted children over the years. And it's just beautiful that that's available to people. And there's a process and it's been amazing to see see people enter into that journey. But here's the thing. If you're reading Ephesians in a early house church in the Greco-Roman world, let's just say you're in Ephesus and you're reading it, to hear the word adoption and that be something that marks us as people who follow God, it would have been mind-blowing. Uh, you're sitting around uh, maybe the Lord's Supper and you're eating hummus and pita and it would just like, you'd have to put it down for a second to wrap your mind around the reality that what Jesus has done is adopted us into his family. Why? Well, if you know anything about the Greco-Roman world, adoption was a thing in the Greco-Roman world. And if you were adopted into a family that was Roman citizens, you would automatically receive all the rights and the privileges in the empire, which was craziness, which was actually not always easy under the Roman rule and everything that all the political, social stuff that's going on in the first century, to say that you were adopted was just this mind-altering, life-altering reality that you now have all the rights and privileges. And this is what it is. This is what Paul's saying. If you trust Jesus with your life, you've been adopted into the family of God. You're now a part of this beautiful movement. And all the rights and privileges in this kingdom are yours. And I know we hear this, this is a very well-known passage, but don't let that, again, don't let this pass us by. How crazy it is that we have been adopted into the family of God. So we're in Christ, Jesus being the greatest gift, we're adopted. And then there's like a third, I mean, there's more in here, but there's like a third word that really stands out as a gift in which God gives his people. And it's this word that we translate in English, redemption. Redemption. Now, it's not a word that we use a lot, The Greek word here for redemption is actually the word apolotrosis, apolotrosis. Now, I'm not trying to sound smart, but it does actually matter because this word apolotrosis was actually the same word that was used for something that was very prominent in Greco-Roman culture. If you don't know anything about the Greco-Roman world, a large percentage of people in the Greco-Roman world were slaves. You could actually go to the market, the Agora, and you could actually purchase a slave that would uh, be yours. And uh, we don't have all, a ton of time to unpack all that was slavery in the ancient Roman world. We've done some work on this over time in other teachings. But that, that's how it rolled. You could do that. You could go and purchase a slave for manual labor and so on. Now, this word apolotrosis, though, was a word that was given to somebody who would go and purchase a slave and they would purchase them and set them free. This is actually the word, this is the word picture we get for the word redemption. Just think about it for a second. This is the word, apolotrosis, redemption, was the relieving or the setting free of a slave, that there was actually a price that was paid, a a slave was purchased and then set free. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what this is what has happened to us. A price was paid through Jesus and his atoning work, him giving his life for us, him laying it down, 
And now we're set free. We're set free from sin and death and destruction and going our own destructive ways. We've been set free because of the redemption that Jesus brings, apolytrosis. The, 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 you read this again. You're reading this or you're hearing this read over you in a house church. You, your mind, your heart, your imagination is just completely open to the reality that what Jesus has done is he set us free. Craziness. I mean, you read this and you hear this and you begin to see everything changes. These are the gifts that God pours out for us. He gives him, gives us himself. He adopts us into the family and ultimately he sets us free from the power of sin and death. This, my friends, is why I get up in the morning, and I I think probably this is why you're locked into a community in a culture that kind of sees church as laughable and out of touch. This is why we do what we do right here. Jesus' work, empower, the availability to follow Jesus, and him bringing us together. It is incredible. And this passage is one of, I I know all scripture is authoritative, and leads and guides us, but this right here, we cannot forget. Now, that's kind of the reflection for the 12th day of Christmas and the gifts that God gives and just putting that before us. What we also want to do is we want to take some time and introduce, quickly introduce a little bit of a new practice for us um, just that will help lead us kind of in the future here, especially through the months of January and February, something that we think will be beneficial. So let me set the stage by saying this. Um, a couple years ago, a guy named, a friend of ours, and a guy named AJ Sherrill came and he shared on the Enneagram with us. Now, if you know what the Enneagram is, don't worry. Some of people automatically go to Pentagram thinking kind of like, no, it's not like that at all. Enneagram is legit. It is a personality theory that has sparked some interest in our community and a number of people worldwide as a tool for personality theory, and we just dig it. It's been something that has been really helpful for a lot of people within our community and spurred on a lot of conversation, and it's been really good. So AJ came and shared uh, for a day uh, a couple years ago, and it was fantastic. His work on this was so good, but one of the things he did is he concluded that day by leading us through creating and shaping a rule of life. And he helped us in light of our personality to cultivate and to really set forth a rule of life. Now, it was pretty quick and he did a fantastic job getting us to look at different categories and how we could put different practices in our life and kind of cultivate those things. And I've just been stewing on this a ton because this is actually a practice and something that Christians have done for a a long time. And we want now to kind of a couple years after that begin to put this before our community to help you and all of us think about shaping a rule of life for the next year and beyond. Um, The reality is, is that the, the scriptures talk a lot about our life journey in Jesus or The bigger word, kind of the theological word, is this word sanctification. Uh, The reality is many people know what God has done for them, like we just read in Ephesians 1. Many people know that in their head, but for a lot of people, it just kind of tends to stop there. People will say things like this. Anytime we talk about kind of the life journey and spiritual formation, I'll often hear people say, well, it's about the gospel and sinners being saved. And yet, and obviously... Life in Jesus is about the gospel, but oftentimes people who assert this 
can be some of the most miserable, un-Jesus-like people on the planet. So they know what God's done. They know uh, Ephesians 1. But as far as practiced and looking like Jesus, oftentimes the journey of sanctification and walking with God and becoming more like Jesus is lost. You know, I've even worked with people who are so passionate about things like evangelism. Some of them going to the point of like stopping people on the street. But when it comes to to the totality of their lives, they look nothing like Jesus in their life and practices. I know people like this. They're passionate about other people hearing about turning and repenting and giving their life to God. And they'll go to the, they'll go to the ends of the earth to do it. And yet, honestly, and maybe I'm sounding a little judgy here. It's the beginning of the year. Welcome. But a lot of times the life and the practices and the character look nothing like Jesus. And here's the thing. We feel a strong call as a church to lead people in all of life. As I get older and kind of grow in this, and as our church community kind of matures, I'm just being uh, continually aware that all of life actually matters. You know, one of the grave sins of the Western church is we've kind of made it all about kind of the afterlife and eternity, and there's there's elements of that, but it's interesting that even the biblical writers talk about eternal life starting now and that this life would blend in to the age to come. and. It's not just about getting sinners into heaven, but it's about the rule and reign of God coming over our lives. And we want to lead people in what I think is so important is a holistic life as an apprentice or follower of Jesus. Yes, we're saved and we're adopted just like what we read here because of Jesus, but we believe that our entire life matters and my hope is that we would grow to become more like him over time, that it that it takes time. Now, if you've been around our community, we've talked a lot about transformation. And again, in the in kind of in our Western minds, we think information on its own leads to transformation. And the reality is, is Jesus and even things like science today, like around transformation, would say that information on its own does not lead to transformation. Transformation does not come through just simply reading your Bible on its own. And listen, I hope a ton of us, I think a ton of us this year are going to read the scriptures and enter into, enter into reading the scriptures every day. But just because you read your Bible every day does not mean that you're going to be transformed. Right? Or transformation doesn't simply come through you know, singing or chanting Hillsong and Bethel songs for hours on end. And this is coming from a guy who absolutely loves praise and worship. I love praise and worship, and we want to cultivate kind of an atmosphere of praise and worship in our gatherings as we join in as a church. But here's the thing. I grew up in a tradition that often thought, a charismatic tradition that thought if you just sing and kind of chant and sing for hours on end, that that will bring transformation. But it's just funny, as a kid and adolescence and into high school, I just saw that you could sing till you're blue in the face, but that doesn't necessarily mean that when you leave that gathering, you're going to be more transformed and more like Jesus. Singing Hillsong songs till the cows come home doesn't necessarily on its own lead to transformation. And this is something that some of us have to just wrestle with, that reading your Bible on its own doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be transformed, let alone singing at a worship night for hours on end. And I'm for those things, by the way. I'm for worship nights and, again, praise and worship. But somehow we've thought in our minds, you know, I just think of some of the people growing up that were the mo- on the front row for the praise and worship night, but when it came to their entire life, really didn't look like Jesus. 
transformation even doesn't on its you know transformation doesn't come also just by having a crazy encounter with God on its own, right? I mean, some of us will go to Paul and say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? But even when you look at Paul, who literally got knocked off his horse and God showed up and completely changed his life, Paul was actually the one that talked about sanctification or the journey of becoming more like Jesus than he did talk about justification. It was Paul, the guy Paul, who was very open in his writings about his own failings and being the weakest. And this was the same guy that would write and talk about walking in step with the Spirit. Paul knew that the journey of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, was the most important thing. And so sometimes we think transformation will come certain ways. Many of us want a quick fix. We just want like a zap from heaven. But that's typically not how it works. Transformation comes through practice. Transformation, we, this is not new. We talk about this a lot. Transformation comes through practice. I want to be transformed. I want to be more like Jesus. It takes practice. That's why we actually turned and changed the name of our church to practice. Praxis. We changed the name of our church to Praxis, sorry. You know, it wasn't just like one night eating chicken wings and pizza and thinking, oh, you know what would be a great name to name our church? No, there's actually intention behind our name because Jesus believed his way, his teachings, everything that he downloaded onto us was to be practiced. And so some of us, as we start a new year and as we look at a rule of life, I just want to remind us that it's not, there's, there's very few quick fixes here. And so it leads me to just ask you, how's the resolutions going? Right? How, how are your resolutions going? Um, for the most part, and even the science of New Year's resolutions would say this, that resolutions leave us pretty empty. You know, I haven't gone to the gym much in the last few days because it's, I, I just know every year for about a five or six or seven day period, it's just packed. Everybody makes these resolutions and thank the Lord, it's been actually warm outside over Christmas and, and New Year's, so I've been able to run outside. But I know that things will be back to normal in a few days, right? Because resolutions, having wishful thinking or thinking that we have a certain willpower typically renders itself empty. Not in every case, but a lot of cases, wishful thinking and even sometimes goal setting does not work without practice. Resolutions tend to leave us empty. And so better than resolutions in like just making goals and resolutions for the new year. I mean, you can do that. And if you've done that, amazing. I hope it works out for you. But one of the things we wanted to engage is actually the Christian Christian, Christian practice of having and setting a rule of life. So like I said, AJ did helped us with this a couple years ago. So we're just going to take a couple minutes and we're going to talk about a rule of life and what that looks like. We have got our hands on an amazing resource from a fantastic church in the U.S. that has really put this together. They've done a great job at putting what a rule of life is uh, together and some resource around this. So if you don't have that in front of you, you can actually access that by emailing us at hello at mypraxis.church. We're really thankful that this church has done the groundwork in doing this. And we've just been thinking over the last year or so that this would be something that we could implement into our church and, and helping you kind of create a rule of life. So if you need the actual document, there's an actual document you can get. Just email us at hello at mypraxis.church. But what is 
a rule of life. What's a rule of life? Well, I'll put it like this, and others have defined it similar to this, that a rule of life is a schedule or set of practices that help us become more like Jesus. All it is, is a schedule or set of practices that we actually write down that help us become more like Jesus. Now, if you're caught up on the word uh, rule, because some of you are punk rock and rebels and you don't want rules, you know, this Latin word rule was originally the word not for like something that squashed you, like it was over you as far as like, you know, we think rule in the Western mind. Um, The word rule was originally the word that was used for a trellis in a vineyard. So in the same way that a vine needs a trellis to lift it off the ground so it can bear maximum fruit, that's what a rule is, a rule of life, is it's something that is almost like scaffolding that helps us grow. It's something that helps us organize our life around. And ultimately, the end goal is to organize our life with God. If you don't know, The number one core value in our community before doing anything is life with God. The reason why I exist and we exist in this community is to push our community to life with God, to relationship with God, to abiding in the vine, to flourishing in life with God. Uh, Margaret Gunther, she puts it like this. She says, a good rule can set us free to be our true and best selves. It's a working document, a kind of spiritual budget, not carved in stone, but subject to regular review and revision. It should support us, but never constrict us. Or on the back of the document from the rule of Benedict, it says this, as we go forward in our life and faith, our hearts will expand and we will run the way of God's commandments with unspeakable sweetness of love. Beautiful. It's the scaffolding. It's the trellis that helps us produce fruit. Because here's the thing. Again, sometimes we think of transformation as just kind of like good ideas, that good ideas are going to transform us, or wishful thinking. But we actually, there's a, there's something powerful in actually writing something down and having a rule of life, a life plan that will help us become more like Jesus. So what I want to do over the next couple minutes is just get this going for us. Now, in the meantime, I want to let you know that this is best practiced in community. So we're going to talk about a few things here about how we can use this rule of life document well to shape a rule of life for ourselves. But I'll just say, For our community, you should get into community. Um, We are really encouraging our community leaders, like our small, what would be small groups for some churches, that's what we call it, but our our small communities that meet around living rooms and dinner tables. We have a few fantastic communities that meet together. We're actually encouraging you over the next few weeks to actually use this and shape it and actually start discussion around how you're shaping a rule of life. We believe it's best used in community. So even Heather and I, we run a Wednesday community and we will be using this over the next couple weeks to kind of get the year going as we shape a rule of life together. But in this, there are seven life categories that touch on what could be applied to the rule of life. We're going to talk about these seven categories. You'll also see in the document that there's a fantastic little chart here that helps um, in which you can take the seven life categories and implement them, implement things in those categories in the different rhythms of life, whether that's daily or weekly, thinking daily, what are some things I can do in each category daily or weekly, of course monthly, there's some things, quarterly, maybe something you can think about, but also annually. So how can I take some 
practices in each life category and implement them. And the best thing you can do, and we can do, because I'm doing this too, is take some time and write down in each category what I would do uh, throughout these particular rhythms. So what we're gonna do here is just to close, is talk about the seven categories, and then just gonna leave it with you. There's no pressure to do this. You can turn this off if you want, or you can use the document to write a grocery list for Monday. Honestly, we just feel like this particular practice will be beneficial. And again, this is not just like spur of the moment. When AJ started this a couple years ago for us, it's just something that we've wanted to do. And then we came across this resource, so it's great. So the first life category, actually the first two life categories are under, under the goal of being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. So the first life category is this, abiding abiding examples of abiding and obviously just getting get a mind picture of abiding with Christ just like on like us on the vine as fruit bear as we bear fruit we're connected to the vine so some examples of abiding would be morning prayer or scripture reading maybe worship music or the daily office um, the daily office is actually something we have promoted over the last few years there is a great um, resource from a guy named Shane Claiborne called the Common Prayer app that I partic- I use uh, often as a way to join in on the daily office. So just for myself, I'm not really spiritual like some of you that like pray for hours on end. Um, I'm just realized I've just realized I'm just not good at that. So my particular rhythm is the daily office and I the app actually notifies me. I think it's eight o'clock, noon, and six o'clock. So morning, midday, and evening. To join in the daily office with prayer and reflection, and I use that app, and that has been something that has been huge in, in abiding on a daily, daily basis. The recommended baseline practice for abiding is to commit to daily quiet time away from your phone, um, as well as maybe a weekly Sabbath and church on Sunday. All of these practices are different practices that you can do through the day, week, month, year that have to do with abiding, with the goal of being with Jesus. That's what abiding is. So the first life category, abiding. The second life category is the mind. And again, with the goal of being with Jesus. Uh, Examples in practices that shape itself around the mind. Maybe reading scripture in the morning, listening to podcasts or book, uh, book reading. Obviously church on Sunday. There's things like creating a digital rule of life or what some call parenting your phone, different things like that that help with the mind. The recommended baseline practice for the mind is to commit to disengage from screens on a daily, weekly, and annual basis. And honestly, this is something you almost have to enter into and write down about setting a limit on things like entertainment and screen time. And this is an important practice when it comes to the mind, especially as we're bombarded with, bombarded with images and distraction that we would um, guard our minds. So to be like Jesus, first category, life category, abiding. Second life category, mind. Writing down things in each uh, rhythm, whether that's daily, again, uh, weekly, monthly, or annually. What are things that you could be doing to guard your mind, to cultivate your mind, uh, throughout those particular rhythms. Then the second, the third, sorry, the third life category is the body. The body. And the body comes with a goal to become 
like Jesus, to become like Jesus. Now, one of the grave sins in the Western world is the disembodiment of our bodies. For a lot of people, the body has not mattered. It's all about the soul and getting the soul to heaven. And then you just come to biblical theology into the scriptures and you realize that the body is really, really important. First of all, God's not throwing this world out. Your body matters now. I think I heard somebody say once, you don't have a body, you are a body. At resurrection, we will have glorified bodies. The body is part of what it means to be human. And we need to think through this life category and putting particular rhythms that cultivate the body. So examples of this are sleep and regular exercise and a healthy diet and water and limiting alcohol intake. And some of you are like, dang it. But we need to think through this. Um, All my reading recently on mental health is, this isn't solely the issue, but a lot of mental health issues are related to our body and what we do. A lack of regular exercise can do that. How we eat, high-carb diets, different things like that, all affect the mind. And people that have engaged certain patterns in exercise and in healthy eating have realized that it's more than just your body, but it does deal with your mind. And so cultivating the body is so important. Um, The recommended baseline practice for this is to commit to a significant amount of sleep, whether that's seven or eight hours a night, and getting exercise on a regular basis. How are you going to do this? This is pumping this into the chart. What am I going to do daily? Is there something I'm going to do daily with my body? Um, Again, weekly, monthly, and annually are the things that you can do as part of your rule of life to become more like Jesus. The fourth category is... The fourth category is relationships. Relationships. Looking at your rule of life, how are you going to cultivate relationships? How are you going to cultivate relationships along the way as part of your rule of life? So this may mean examples for friendship, like weekly phone calls or getting together and connecting with friends. Examples for church, this may mean uh, eating a community meal with people in the church. We do this on a a regular basis. This is just part of who we are in cultivating relationships. Maybe example for marriage is, you know, getting together for a 15-minute touch point per day, a weekly date night, um, and you know, so forth. Regular getaways, different things in marriage and family, sitting down and having dinner together. I think this needs to be put into a rule of life that we're going to do this a certain amount of times a week or whatever. Uh, Annual vacation for families, family movie night. Some of these things need to be clearly defined in a rule of life if they're actually going to happen, especially in our chaotic world. The recommended baseline practice for relationships is to commit to a weekly meal with your community and some daily and weekly touch points with your spouse and children and family if you have them. And so one of the things I think this is for relationships, the relational part, especially in our own church framework, is communities. Get in a praxis community. This will help cultivate and change um, just the trajectory as far as relationships in your life. I think it's the fifth one. The fifth life category is work and money. Work and money. So... Examples of this in our rule of life is a fixed hour schedule and dedicating time to deep work. It could also mean tithing uh, or having a blessing fund or maybe getting involved in mission stuff and sponsoring a child. The recommended baseline practice for this is to commit to spend several hours each day divide, uh, devoted sorry, to important work and to think about 
implementing things like tithing or giving to your local community, thinking about the poor, different projects, and of course, your church family. Um, you know, with work and money, again, this stuff doesn't just happen. You got to write. I think you got to write it down. You've got to plan, and you've got to practice it in within kind of the context of a rule of life. And work and money is such a big part. Jesus talks about this a lot, and uh, even baby steps to giving and stewarding your life away is so important. Then the last two life categories, six and seven are all about doing what Jesus did. So being with Jesus, if you look in the chart, being the goal of being with Jesus, then becoming like Jesus and now doing what Jesus did. There's two in this. The sixth life category is rest. An example of this is a morning quiet time, maybe sleeping more, whether that's seven or eight hours a night, a weekly Sabbath. I think Sabbath is something that should be non-negotiable in the life of Jesus. This is something Jesus practiced. And by the way, ton, there are there's tons of science, even secular science and data around how a Sabbath life, the, like, there's just tremendous benefits. I think it's a guy named Matthew Sleeth who wrote a book called 24-7. He's a medical doctor. I forget, I'm not sure if that's the exact name. He's a medical doctor and has done a ton of work around Sabbath. And I mean, even just the empirical data of people that have been tested and who have rested one, who rest one day a week. It's incredible. Just that rhythm. I think God knew what he was doing when he set forth this particular rhythm and how important it is. So for rest, the recommended baseline practice is to commit to a daily quiet time and everybody committing to a weekly Sabbath and just putting that in the rule of life as something that's to be practiced. And then seventh category is this gospel hospitality gospel sorry gospel and hospitality gospel and hospitality thinking through to do what jesus did is to actually eat meals with people and invite people in so it's crazy uh actually heather and i have done this we've made like literally we haven't literally done this we basically made a blood oath Together, I think, you know, the Old Testament way of covenant where you put your hand under the right thigh or whatever, we've done this and basically said, we are going to open up our home once a week until we die or until we're too old to do so and invite people in and be hospitable because this is the Jesus way. This is what Jesus did. And you have to be intentional about it. This I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but this is actually something that we have committed to do and it has radically changed our lives around gospel and hospitality. It's interesting with Jesus that the scriptures, the gospels talk of Jesus as the son of man who came eating and drinking. One theologian actually says that this was Jesus, this was his mission strategy, that he just ate meals with people and invited people into the kingdom of God. And you have to be intentional with this. So examples of gospel and hospitality is a regular night to host neighbors for dinner. I think all of us need to think through that, how we can open up our lives. If you have neighbors around you, spending time with coworkers, friends, people in your community. This is actually a significant part of doing what Jesus did in a rule of life. And the recommended baseline practice is to commit to invite a friend who doesn't follow Jesus regularly into eating meals together and eating meals in community with other Jesus followers. So important that hospitality is a part of our rule of life and the way we're living because this was the Jesus way. This is what he did. This was his mission strategy. At any rate, there's seven categories that you can pump in and think about. So here's the deal. 
That may seem like a lot and like a crash course introductory. Again, we're thankful that this resource has kind of been made available. We just hope we can practice this. You don't, we're not going to like push people into this. It's just an invitation to think about a rule of life and think about applying and implementing those seven categories into the different daily, weekly, monthly, annually rhythms of your life. We encourage you to write it down. We also encourage you to listen to the spirit and where he's leading you. I know as you listen, I listen. I know as you listen to this, that the Holy Spirit is speaking. I just believe that. That is, we get intentional. Jesus cares about our entire lives. Don't get caught into the trap. Again, that all Jesus cares about is that you get into heaven when you die. Obviously, that's an important piece of our lives, but Jesus cares about everything we say and do and practice. And our hope is that as we age and get older, that we would become more like Jesus in what we do. That one day when we stand before him, whenever that is, we would be more like Jesus than what we are today. And I just hate to break it to you. It takes practice. It takes being intentional. And Christians have practiced this. And so we wanted to uh, kind of put it out there to give opportunity for our community to do this. So over the next number of days, some of the stuff will be online. If you need the document, uh, again, message us at hello at mypraxis.church. And over the next couple of uh, weeks and months, we're just hoping that we can cultivate this and become intentional with this stuff. Happy 12th day of Christmas, everybody. Tomorrow's the Feast of Epiphany. We're going to get into our series, Epiphany and the Season of Epiphany in the Church Calendar. I think this is going to be super great as we celebrate Jesus and the gospel and the gospel of the kingdom coming to regular, ordinary, average, primarily Gentile people like us and how mind-blowing that is. It's going to be a great season. Hopefully, we can see you next Sunday. Go cultivate I use that word all the time. Go shape a rule of life and let's live it out in the way of Jesus.